Hello and welcome to Everyday Oral Surgery. This is your host, Dr. Grant Stuckey. I am an oral and maxillofacial surgeon practicing in Denver, Colorado. The goal of this podcast is to connect, learn, and inspire. In this podcast, you'll be hearing from OMS surgeons all over the globe discussing ways to improve the practice of oral and maxillofacial surgery. Most information shared in this podcast will be based on personal experience and opinions, so please supplement what you learn here with approved research studies. If you are a regular follower of the podcast, please go to our website, everydayoralsurgery.com, and register to receive newsletters and find links to our social media accounts. Most importantly, if you'd like to be interviewed on the podcast or know someone who you'd like to hear from, or if there's a topic you'd like to hear about, please email me at grantstukey at gmail.com. Without further ado, please enjoy today's episode. Welcome to another episode. Today I'm with Dr. Justin Clemau. He's an oral maxillofacial surgeon practicing in Ohio. Justin, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast today. Yeah, you got it. All right. So I'm excited to talk to you today about kind of using the precordial stethoscope. But before we do that, can you just give us a brief history of your training and your current practice setup? Sure. So I went to dental school in Yukon, well, a long time ago. Residency then was University of Florida in Jacksonville, which is a six-year dual degree program. So I finished that in 2013. I moved up to Cleveland, Ohio, worked here for two years, did two years in private practice in Massachusetts, and then we've been back in Cleveland since 2017. So since 2017, I have a hybrid practice where I work half the time in my private practice, which is in Sandusky, Ohio. And then the other half at Metro Health Medical Center, which is sort of the county hospital in Cleveland in level one trauma, where we have an academic affiliation with Case Western. So their residents rotate through with us. And I do sedation in both places and had as a condition of my employment basically everywhere since residency, uh, insisted on a couple things that I think are required to do anesthesia safely. One of them was the a precordial stethoscope. That's great. My brother Jake, who's a resident, was telling me a little bit about kind of what you do and how awesome it is. Can you explain to us your technique and kind of how you got into using this? First time I ever saw a precordial was in residency with the anesthesia guys were using them. The original precordial stethoscope has been around forever. And the, the original is a silver bell that sits on the trachea, usually just below the thyroid cartilage. So you're subglottic and there's a little tube connected to it. And then in the old days, they would get it, do an alginate impression of their ear canal so that you'd have a little ear earpiece that fit in there. Why the anesthesia guys used them never really made sense to me. It was always the residents or the student RNAs, CRNAs, and they have a secured airway with an endotracheal tube. So that's the first I ever saw of it. Subsequently, a Bluetooth version came out, and the only company I know that makes this is called Sedation Resources, and I convinced my residency to purchase one. And I found it to be invaluable. It didn't catch on for everyone else in the residency. And when I left residency, the practice I was working at had them. And, you know, from there, I've just continued using it as critical. For me, the Bluetooth versus connected has two benefits. One, you're not tied, right? So there's no like string hanging from your ear down to the patient that you can knock off or 
if you step away from the patient, as I am known to do, to grab the drill or whatever, you don't have something tugging at you. The other is that there's an amplifier in it. And from the older version to the newer version, the position of the amplifier has changed. Currently, it's actually in the bell. It used to be that there was the bell, a little bit of tube, and then an amplifier, and then the rest of the cord. But so that amplifies the breast sounds, and you can, on your earpiece, turn the volume up and down. Nice. What in your mind are some of the, I guess, barriers or issues with kind of getting used to this technique? Well, so it costs like 600 bucks, I think, last I checked. So maybe that's a barrier. As with any monitor, there is a little bit of a learning curve. And your brother can probably speak to that. Even my partners in the hospital, the two other attendings don't use it. My partner in my office tried it and was like, you know, I don't know why anyone wouldn't use this. And that's sort of my position on it. So, you know, there's some cost, which is negligible. Can't swing 600 bucks. You're not doing a good job in practice. The other is there's a little bit of technique sensitivity in that you need to have a, well, it needs to be positioned appropriately. Some people like short fat neck, it's a little bit tougher to actually get the anatomy, get to the right spot. Also, if it's a guy that's got a real hairy chest that extends up onto the neck, it's hard to get a good seal. So you do need a good seal to hear well. The, the company, I think the company themselves maybe, sells like a ring-shaped adhesive that's double adhesive that we put on the stethoscope and then put on the neck. But often that'll have just a little air leak and any air leak, you just hear ambient noise more so than you hear the patient breathing. So pretty commonly we'll do an extra piece of tape right across the thing. But just like I compare it to intubation, which is that until you know what normal looks like, it's hard to know what abnormal is. And my first intubation and residency on the anesthesia service, I goosed it because I saw a hole and I had never really like seen the arytenoids and the cords. I didn't know what the hole was that I was supposed to be looking for. So a hole, got a tube into it. Just turns out to be not the right hole. So if I, you know, once you, once you then on the subsequent one, the, you know, anesthesia attending was like, look, this is what you're looking for. I was like, ah, okay. So that's the goalpost that I'm looking for. So same thing with the precordial, you've got to get some like used to hearing what normal sounds like so that you can start to appreciate what abnormal is. And it's not brain surgery, just from, from doing it over and over. If you have a correct seal, you'll start to you know recognize, I, I guess the barrier there is one of my partners in the hospital tried it. And I think this was top-down processing. I was like, so how do you like it? Is it working? He's like, yeah, yeah, it's, it's pretty good. Yeah, I think so. And I go and look, and he's got the bell actually upside down on the neck. And so obviously he's hearing nothing, right? But he's like trying to like, appease me that yeah this thing's a you know a good call so there's a minor learning curve but once you get used to it I'll probably segue into what your one of your next questions i think the benefits are multiple and so pre-cordial stethoscopes have started to come out as some of the like sort of positions or recommendations from amos as a helpful adjunct and i've had conversations with people like deepak Krishnan and Greg Ness, who do a lot of like the anesthesia stuff in Ohio and for Amos and Opium. And both of them actually are familiar with it. And I was like, Deepak, I think this should really be part of the recommendation because capnography is helpful. Precordials are not mandated. For me, the precordial is the most important. Mod if my precordial is working, 
the capnography to me is secondary. Even the pulse ox is secondary. And the so benefits being it's a different sense, right? So it's you're hearing it, not having to look at it. And so usually where I'm looking when I'm operating is in the surgical field. And so the capnography, you get some, you know, obviously the appearance and with your pulse ox, you'll get sound as well as the pulse ox starts to drop. But the precordial, you get a very real-time assessment of your respirations to the point where if I, you know, reposition the jaw or reposition my C-sponge and you'll hear the breathing go from present to absent. Or if, as I start, you know, pressing on the lower third molar, which brings the mandible down and back, you can hear sometimes that that's just a little bit, even with your chin or holding the chin, that's just a little bit that uh, leads to the, the airway obstructing. And so I'm not afraid of that. Like I, I know it's happening. I know why. If I'm pushing for a long time, I'll probably stop so that the chinner can get that extra centimeter of jaw thrust and the patient has, you know, subsequent respirations. So it's the fact that it's hearing instead of seeing is just like, you know, listening to music while you're operating. It doesn't interfere. Using the precordial stethoscope, has that changed other things that you do? Because now you're hearing more sensitively, like has it changed, for example, the way you position your throat pack because you're more aware of if water's getting on the cores and stuff like that? Yes, you can hear secretions. I guess it makes me much more confident. So in, with my anesthesia technique, there is almost, in effect, essentially always apnea at the start of the case. So to air my dirty laundry, my average, like, you know, 20-year-old patient for thirds Gets four or five versed, 50 of fentanyl, 20 or 30 of ketamine, some decadron. And then I, you know, give that a, a couple of minutes. So versed, fentanyl, ketamine, and I sort of see what the effect is. If they're still talking to me, I'm probably going to need to give a hefty bolus of probe. If they're apneic from that first round, then probably minimal probe. But after that, and Jake has seen this time and again, after versed fentanyl and ketamine, they're remindable to breathe. Some of them get an apnea, which is central. So it's just a lack of respiratory drive. It's not obstruction. And I can I can hear that. The cap for capnography, it's just absent. But you can actually hear an open airway. So I can hear from the nasal cannula like turbulent flow. It's like a, a very, and this is very subtle, but if you do enough of it, you can hear it. I can hear that there's background, that the airway is open just that they're that they've lost their respiratory drive. So before I give probe, I'll like tap them with a little stimulus and say, hey, take some deep breaths. And they're often remindable where where they'll, you know, they'll respond by breathing, which helps with some pre-oxygenation. So that I give Wallace a probe and then they go apneic again, but I'm then, you know, getting my local in. That is different than an obstruction, which you don't hear any background noise and because my jaw, my, one of my chinners will be like particularly aggressive if they're not breathing to try to stimulate them to breathe. And I'll be like, it's not that they're obstructing, it's that they're, they've just lost their respiratory drive. And I have this sort of shot clock in my head, right? And so I know they're apneic. I'm trying to get through my local pretty quickly because I'm stimulating them with the local. You don't need to do an aggressive jaw thrust. If after that, you know, I then start my first tooth and they still haven't, I can hear the second they start breathing again, first with little breaths and then with good breaths. And so I'm that much more emboldened to like not be worried about the apnea. If they haven't started to breathe again, which usually they do, but I've got that, like I've known the second that they stopped breathing 
And the second the sats drop to like 98 or 97, I get ready to bag them because I know it's the consequence of like a minute and a half or two minutes of apnea, as opposed to that person that's obstructing or like partially obstructing or sort of, which you can hear very audibly in your ear. Sometimes you can hear that pretty well, just, you know, from the patient sort of snoring. That's one that the sats dropping uh, doesn't make me as nervous because I know they're sort of maintaining, but it's not from apnea. It's just from, you know, hypoventilation. So yeah, it makes me more confident to have them deeper, which has been a I guess an adjustment over over the years. I just hate the rodeo sedation and especially at Metro with the county hospital and a lot of marijuana and substance abuse and higher BMIs, that gets harder and harder. So as long as the airway is good, meaning a good malum body, I'm more inclined to go deeper and the stethoscope makes me more confident. The other is in times of apnea, it is very reassuring or refreshing when I'm giving positive pressure, which I'll often do like sort of preventatively. Giving positive pressure as a rescue is much more nerve wracking if any of the listeners have been in that situation. Giving positive pressure just to sort of top them off is much less concerning to me or more comfortable to me, especially with when the pre with the precordial, I can actually hear the air going in. So in cases of often it's some laryngospasm, partial, hopefully, as a consequence of the, and that's usually with residents doing this, irrigating and the assistant isn't keeping up and the C-sponge just isn't perfectly positioned or throw pack, whatever you use. I think a C-sponge is critical for, for that exact purpose. A little water gets back there. They start coughing, which is a very self-inflicted accident. And then that after subsequent to the coughing, you basically don't hear any any noise and you know you've got a partial obstruction or sometimes complete. And so you do jaw thrusts, you get out your, your BVM and giving positive pressure, you can actually hear the laryngospasm break, which is a very sort of, for me, confidence inspiring moment. Yes, there's chest rise and maybe fog in the bag and you probably don't have capnography on your BVM. So... But so being able to hear it, I can also then say, hey, you, listen, you don't need to give such full breaths to avoid, you know, insufflating the stomach. Like I can hear the breaths going in. We've broken the spasm. Now we're just sort of helping them along with their respirations. And you can hear as they start breathing again. So you're much more in tuned from my standpoint. Yeah, that is awesome to hear all the kind of details that you normally wouldn't be hearing and how you can act quicker based on, on what you're hearing. Yeah, it's, I'll do an example for the residents as they're getting to use it. So at the end of the case where usually the patient's still pretty deep, I'll like have them put the thing on, put the precordial on, we'll have the mouth open, I'll have them look at the monitor because now we're not doing a procedure anymore. And, you know, that's a nice capnography curve, right? And you can hear what's going on. And then either let go of the jaw, if they're deep enough, just letting go of the jaw, they're going to obstruct if they're relatively light or have a real good airway, you might need to kind of push the jaw back a little bit. But you see that capnography disappear. You hear in your ear that happening immediately. And what I would submit to you is not all of us are looking at the monitor every second of the case. Your assistant hopefully is, the anesthesia assistant, who's in my case also the chinner. But before that capnography alarm has gone off, which takes usually 20 seconds or so, I've already intervened by repositioning the airway and opening things up. So with the capnography, you know, being prepared and knowing things 10 seconds or 20 seconds ahead of time certainly allows you to intervene as opposed to having to do, you know, rescue things. Yeah, that is fantastic. 
Hey guys, real quick, KLS Martin is offering a 35% discount on my favorite KLS Martin instruments for everyday oral surgery listeners. So there's a link um, in the podcast notes with a full listing and a video highlighting some of the advantages of using KLS Martin instrumentation. Uh, to utilize this offer, use promo code STUKIFAVES with a capital S and a capital F. So capital S, lowercase t-u-c-k-i, capital F, lowercase a-v-s. And you can use that through your KLS Martin sales rep or by emailing usa at klsmartin.com. I handpicked these instruments based on the kind of favorite extraction instruments that I use on a daily basis. And um, I hope you enjoy them. Are there any nuanced skills? You know, you've touched on some of them, but any others that need to be learned with the precordial stethoscope that can help the guy or girl surgeon who's first using it and kind of getting frustrated maybe with how effective it is? So two variations. I, I don't know if these are nuanced skills, but they are frustrations to the precordial. And sometimes the pain in the butt sedation, which is either someone who's like kind of like crying through the case, even though they're at least at a stage two of anesthesia or sort of moderate sedation level, or someone who's talking. There's some, especially the like higher tolerance, usually young male that like are either talking or screaming or apneic, which is very frustrating. But when they're talking, that those noises are just amplified in your ear and it can get very distracting. There also is, and I've never used this, uh, Jake was asking about it and it exists. There's a, a splitter where you have the option to have it connected to a Bluetooth radio as opposed to an earpiece that you wear in your ear. And then the whole room can sort of hear what you're hearing, but it's not quite, a, you know, the difference between wearing, you know, an AirPod versus, you know, listening to the TV or music or whatever throughout the room, there's more ambient, you know, noise that can get in your way. But then the whole team sort of knows. So, yeah, that's annoying if there's extra noises or if they're talking or phonating. Can you change the volume quickly on it, like if it's too loud? Yeah, then you just got a dirty finger, though, so you get to take your glove off. But yes, it's on the side of the earpiece, just an up and a down. So, you know, it's very quick to deet, 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 deet. And then it'll tell you volume minimum, volume maximum. When you turn the earpiece on, it tells you, uh, you know, phone one connected, which is not a phone, but it's basically that the earpiece has paired with the transmitter. So there are three parts to it. There's a bell with a cord that attaches to a amplifier, I think, or transmitter. I don't know. It's a little box. And my chair in my office, I have Velcro on the box and Velcro on the back of my chairs. So they bring that in, Velcro to the back of the chair, plug the thing into, there are two actually ports. The one that says chest piece is where the cord gets connected. The other one says headset. So you could plug in if you didn't want the Bluetooth, which I don't understand why you wouldn't, you could plug in earphones directly to the thing. Otherwise, you have the Bluetooth stethoscope that when you turn it on, it'll tell you talk time 11 hours, which is fully charged. And then it'll say phone one connected, which is that it's paired correctly. Mistakes to make is if you leave the earpiece on, it'll drain the battery because it's looking for something to pair to. And with the older precordial, when you plug the bell into the transmitter, that's what turns it on. So you need to remember to unplug the cord from the transmitter. Otherwise, you're just leaving it on the whole time. With the newer one, there's an on-off button on the transmitter. So those are you know minor things that once you screw them up the first time, you don't screw it up the second time because you learn from your mistakes. But 
that and getting a good seal or basically and it's, it's not a real sophisticated device that to me is like you know i can do implants without a cone beam maybe some of the listeners are young enough that that seems like heresy i don't because i don't know why you would want to like i want to know exactly where science is where the nerve is you can do anesthesia without a precordial i don't because I don't know why you wouldn't want to have that extra information, which is very real-time information. It gives you stuff even beyond what the capnography, the pulse ox, all that stuff is delayed compared to, you know, it's like having a little man in the trachea right below the cords, giving you constant feedback saying, hey, airway's open, you know, you're doing good. I'm assuming you've tried different types over the years. What brand do you like the most? So I haven't tried different brands because there's only one maker that I'm aware of, which is Sedation Resources. So that's, there have been different, like they've changed it and updated it over time. And at one point there was some difficulty getting some wiring in it. So they were on back order for like six months. That was a year ago. So I'm not aware of any other sellers for it. This is probably useless information, but the older one actually, which is what we have in the hospital, actually works a little better than the newer one. The newer one, since the amplifier is in the bell, if things aren't taken care of, like someone's swinging it around or the box gets dropped, which happens probably once a year, the wire gets loose and it'll stop working. So just like any other piece of equipment, you know, how it's cared for matters but I haven't tried other other brands other than my associate, since he doesn't want to use the same earpiece, actually uses the wired one or the connected non-Bluetooth, which is just the same principle as like the two cups with a string across them. It's literally a bell and a tube and an earpiece. There's no amplifier or anything, but actually works very well. You can also hear the heartbeat sometimes. So, I mean, it works well. You're just connected. That is great. So, I mean, just reviewing the pros and cons, pros, you know, you're hearing kind of real time what's going on with obstruction, you're able to act quicker, you know, can potentially give you more confidence with the deepness of your anesthesia. I'm guessing also as well, like you were mentioning, you're more aware if your throat packs in position, you know, and water's getting down there. And then maybe some cons are that it's just sometimes loud if they're talking it's kind of something extra to get used to and then just the, the cost and kind of figuring out how to position it and the nuances there. Any other things you'd add to that? Yeah, I think probably the biggest con is just getting used to it. It's distracting if you're not used to it, right? So for those of us that have been doing this for a while, like even when I'm in the OR where the anesthesia isn't my problem, I can hear the tone of the pulse ox and I know their alarm for like apnea and it's usually because we accidentally disconnected the tube underneath the drapes. And like, so I'm, I'm just like kind of used to hearing that stuff. I'm not attending to it actively. It's just become like second nature, right? Like walking and chewing gum. This becomes that. But initially, I think some of the feedback is like, it's just another thing to think about. And that, I guess, theoretically can get distracting. But just like anything else, you learn to walk and chew gum at the same time. But yeah, I get that's probably the barrier. And if you're using it incorrectly and don't have a good seal and, you know, do that a couple of times, then you're probably going to be like, well, shoot, this doesn't seem to really move the needle for me. I'm going to stop doing it. If you're using it correctly, I think you get used to it and provides invaluable additional information. And real quick, do you use this for all your cases, even like short wisdom teeth cases or 100% when? of the time? 100%. Okay. 
Yeah. So I don't leave home without it. You know, even like sometimes the pulse ox isn't working great, you know, because they have fake nails or cold hands or whatever. Capnography has its downsides as well. If they're breathing through the mouth, you know, you might not pick up real well. So, and sometimes there's an issue of the line or the CO2 trap of the capnography. So to me, when those things are malfunctioning, as long as my precordial is working, I'm pretty good. I forgot to mention, you can also hear wheezing. So like some bronchospasm or just chronic smokers, you hear that wheeze transmitted up, which you, know, you may or not, may not choose to act on. And just to side note, when you were mentioning the sea sponge, because we've done a couple episodes on, you know, throat packs and what people use and don't use. Why do you like the sea sponge over gauze? Oh, that's a no brainer. So I said at the front, there are three things I don't do sedation without. And I don't care if the sedation is like breathing down one kid to wiggle out tooth number E or doing a full arch two hour case. The precordial stethoscope, sea sponge, headlight. I'm sure others would have other lists, but like the ability to see appropriately with a headlight, no matter how good your overhead lights are, is to me critical. The precordial for reasons I've talked about and a sea sponge versus a gauze to me is just night and day. They cost like 20 cents a piece. It is much more absorbent than the gauze and you can wring it out. There's a much better job of sort of if there's a little bit of technique to placement, the residents are taught to like pull the tongue forward. I don't. I just kind of put my if the sea sponge is shaped like that, I put my finger right about there and put it in sort of sideways. And that last little bit that overlaps sort of tucks into the back of the posterior pharyngeal wall. It does a very nice job of curtaining the whole pharynx. I often don't even use a, a sweetheart if they're, you know, as long as they're not tonguing it out, you don't really need to. So more absorbent, better job of providing a curtain. And if by chance, not that this would ever happen to me, your burr slips and you catch the throat pack. When that happens with gauze, it's like a splatter of blood, you know, that gets a six foot radius and you and your assistant. What happens with a sea sponge, that doesn't happen. So all sorts of reasons to me that it's just a much more effective and efficient thing for accomplishing that goal. So... I think a sea sponge is, and I have no financial interest in any of these things, but to me, they're, it's pretty easy. No brainer. Yeah. That's great to hear your take on that. And definitely agree with the headlight as well. I use that for all my cases. Do you use loops at all or no? So I do in the OR, I do not in the office or my you know office-based anesthesia. And part of that is I like to be seeing the patient in my peripheral vision. So you know, if the hands start moving, start you know bending the arm or the legs start moving around or looking at their eyes, sometimes seeing divergent eyes. So no, when I'm doing office-based anesthesia, which is always for me open airway, I don't use loops because I, I like more of my peripheral vision. Yeah, I've used loops on and off and I've talked about it, but I feel like there's a lot of articles too. And someone gave an Amos lecture about how it can cause neck strain and it's just can also hurt your body if you're an old man like me oh, really? anyways yeah okay well that's a great discussion on using the precordial stethoscope if there are listeners who kind of have further questions about this are you okay if i put your email or some type of contact info for them to get in touch with you yeah that's fine email or cell phone sounds good well we end every podcast with some rapid fire questions so my first one for you is 
What is the best book you've read in the past year? Ooh, disclaimer, I don't read many books, but it was to read investment books as I run my practice and trying to do that efficiently. So there's a book called The Little Book That Beats the Market that I liked. And then this wasn't in the past year, but even better investing book is The Little Book of Common Sense Investing, which is by John Bogle, who's the founder of Vanguard. Okay. I'll check those out. What non-oral surgery thing do you do in your life that helps you with your daily oral surgery skills? Hmm. I guess exercise, even though it seems not to be working, I keep getting fatter and older, but it's a physical endeavor, right? So in our field, I think oral surgery is great. It's a good way to make a great living without working yourself to the bone. And if anyone looks at what our reimbursement is for stuff compared to what some of the other surgeons, it seems like we're laughing all the way to the bank. So great way to make a good living without overextending yourself. But if your hands aren't moving, you're not making money. There's no like version where you get to the C-suite and you're just, you know, a puppet master and not doing the work. And so in order to do that, you know, maintaining your physical fitness continues to be important. Even I, you know, my longer cases, MMAs and orthognathic stuff in the hospital, it's like, it's tougher than it used to be. So I guess attention to physical fitness is my answer there. Nice. Next question is, what forceps do you use to extract tooth number 12? I'll either use the upper anterior, which I think is called the number 10 maybe, or a universal upper, which is, I forget if that's 150 or 151. I'm not all that sophisticated with my forceps. It's upper universal, lower universal, ash, upper anterior, or cow horn. Yeah, okay. Do you use the ash on those premolars or is there a reason you wouldn't use it? Lower premolars and anteriors, I'll use an ash. Good. Favorite movie? Do you watch movies or TV shows or anything? Yeah. My son and I are just binging SWAT on Netflix. Oh, nice. So I like that. Also like Suits, which is on Netflix, but I'm old enough to have been watching that when it was actually playing like real time season one through seven on USA back when people like watch things on cable, which I still have. Favorite movie? There's several, but I guess Old School and Tombstone are high on my list. Okay. Well, I have to ask a follow-up question then. Who's your favorite character on Suits? Ah, yeah, but you know, between Harvey and Mike, right? What about Lewis? <laughs> yeah, no, Lewis is a, he's a conflicted individual who plays the role really well, right? Like from one moment to the next, it's you're, it's hard to tell if you like him or not. I guess Mike, you know, less of the cocky and more of the savant, like me. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> nice. Okay. All right. Last question is: What is your favorite quote? Oh, in the arena of anesthesia, since that's the topic, I will frequently cite one that I forget who I first heard it from, so I don't want to credit the wrong person. But if you stay prepared, you never need to get prepared, which holds true in all sorts of anesthesia things. And it's pertinent to the precordial stethoscope talk, you know, that the more sort of proactive you are and the more real time you can figure something out the easier it is to sort of intervene appropriately 
you know, the difference between if you have, let's say, a laryngospasm and you've got to you go to positive pressure, the difference between having that BVM or whatever your positive pressure sort of device is available, like within 10 seconds versus needing to maybe you're an itinerant guy and you got to open up a box that is sitting in the hallway that you haven't opened in you know ever and it's in plastic wrap or something like that that takes like a minute and a half that 60 seconds is the difference between like the scenario i just talked to you about where i'm giving positive pressure as the sat is at you know 95 and hearing reassured that i'm correcting it and trying to rescue giving positive pressure once the sat has already dropped down to 65 and that beep is no longer a high tone. So if you stay prepared, you never need to get prepared. The other was from Winston Churchill, which is the, the definition of success is the ability to move from one failure to the next with no loss of enthusiasm. And I liked that. That's a good one. It's one of my favorites as well. Awesome. Well, Justin, thank you so much for sharing your experience and knowledge with us. I've really enjoyed talking with you. And, you know, maybe we can find another topic to discuss on a different episode sometime. Sounds good. Happy to do it. All right. Have a good day. Thanks so much. Thanks. Bye. Bye. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Everyday Oral Surgery. For more information on these podcasts, please visit everydayoralsurgery.com. I love feedback and would be very grateful if you would reach out to me via my email, grantstukey at gmail.com, and let me know what you thought of this episode. Or you can text me at 720-441-6059. Additionally, if you have any topics you'd like to hear about or if you'd like to be a guest on the podcast, please, please email or text me. I found many of my interviewees through people who have been contacting me and have been listening and I've gotten so many great uh, ideas for more podcasts and that's what helps keep keep the podcast rolling. So really appreciate you making that extra effort and helping me out with uh, feedback and knowing what to do next on the podcast. Thank you so much. Mm-hmm.